Welcome to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast, where hope is yours, it's time to soar. I'm your host, Oren Madison. It's time to rise above and celebrate healing, hope, and recovery with the Millennium Counseling Center team. Special thanks to Kaz Source, who helps us with the production of our podcast. If anybody needs any help or looking into podcasts, please reach out to Kaz Source at kazcontent.com. So on the show, we've talked about mental health before, right? We know it's a big piece of the athletic world. Athletes struggle with this just like any other human being. What I love about our guest today is she is a former Division I athlete turned therapist now who is helping elite athletes with their sports performance and their mental health. She knows she's walked the walk and now she's talking the talk and helping these athletes overcome some of these different pressures that they go through from the mental health side of things. You do not want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. So, what time is it? Game Time Boost! This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you, as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. Excited to be here for another interview. We're almost exactly five years running. Last day of the year. I hope everybody had a fantastic 2021. Some people had it hard. I hope 2022 is, is, is even better or at least better for those who might have had a rough one. But this is going to be an amazing interview to end off uh, 2021. I'm really, really excited about it. A few housekeeping items, though, I wanted to go through real quick on January 5th. So the time that this is going to be launching, you might be listening to this after January 5th. But I want to make sure that you guys who are listening to it right now before January 5th, if you live in Idaho, Connection is the Cure is going to be here. We have this amazing event going on at the Idaho Center in Nampa, Idaho. Alex Boyer is going to be there. It's for mental health and suicide awareness. You guys know if you're following me on all my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever pages, my TikTok pages, you know I've been promoting this. Um, I'm a big advocate of this. It's going to be amazing for mental health and suicide awareness. Great concert. It's free to get in there. It's amazing. Um, And I would encourage all the adults as well as the kids to go. It doesn't matter. Anybody who's ever been impacted by mental health or suicide or you know, you might know of someone who has, uh, make sure to come here because it's going to be an amazing awareness event where you're going to learn about resources that are there. We're going to have good vibes, great concert, just a really good opportunity to be around like-minded people who are trying to have positive influences in their lives. And that's what I'm all about. So I'll put the link here in the description. Connection is the cure, Idaho.org. Go check out more about the event and uh, be there January 5th. It will, the doors open at five 30. The event starts at six 30. So be there. And uh, come say hi to me because I will also be there. I'll be volunteering. So I'd love to talk to you guys. Now, (laughs) bread and butter of the conversation or or, or the episode today, we're bringing on our guest. She's amazing. I've already been able to chat with her before we started recording. Now, she's a therapist. She works in the sports and performance division at Millennium Counseling in Chicago. So she's out of Chicago. She's a former Division I volleyball player, which we're going to get to know more about as well. So we're talking about we're talking about sports. We're talking about the mental health aspect of it. She gets to talk to a lot of elite athletes and help them with the mental health side of it um, in regards to the sports world. And I'm bringing on Sarah Meister. Sarah, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. This is super exciting. Um, you got a lot of energy. That's what I like. That's the, <laughs> that's the type of vibes we want here on the show. Um, and Sarah, we're, we're going we're gonna to rewind the clock a little bit and talk to you a, a little bit more about you and get to know you as an athlete before knowing you as the therapist. We have the athlete and the therapist. So talk to us about your athletic background. When we know that you played division one volleyball, we're going to get to that, but I want to know what sports you competed in growing up and what drove you to wanting to play volleyball when you were younger. I love this. Um, All right. Well, I, I started sports at a really young age, quite honestly. I don't think my parents knew what to do with me because I had so much energy. (laughs) So, so they threw me into literally everything. So I started playing softball when I was like t-ball when I was like five years old, played soccer from a young age. Um, 
played some basketball here or there, um, but really played sports the entirety of my life. Um, you know, my dad actually was always my coach um, for softball. And uh, it was just like indoctrinated it really into everything I did. And I just, I fell in love with the idea of building a new skill and constantly learning and then unlearning and then relearning. And so, um, you know, I played, I played sports throughout high school as well. I played um, varsity softball, varsity soccer, um, and then entered kind of the volleyball world actually really late. So my whole thing, I think for a while was, you know, I loved softball. And I think a part of me was like, I'd done it for so long that I wanted to try something new. And so volleyball kind of just came naturally. I, I felt like I had some decent, decent hand eye. And so entered kind of the volleyball world actually really late, like around eighth grade, my freshman year of high school. So I started, I started fairly late, absolutely fell in love with it, um, was playing club and whatnot. And I didn't even really realize I wanted to play in college until sophomore, junior year. Um, and then from there, I was like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be, what I want to do. Um, so I kind of went full throttle with it. Whereas these other sports, you know, I've been playing for so long, I think I really just started investing in this one more than anything. Um, that's kind of what catapulted me um, to going to play, you know, in college. Yeah. That's super cool. Okay. So a couple of things to unpack there. I was taking notes as you were talking. <laughs> Dad, Dad was the coach. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a conversation that I actually do want to ask about. I mean, as a coach myself, I'm not coaching my, my kids are young still. Like I got a five-year-old and one-year-old, but um. I do coach kids who have been coached by their parents. So I coach high school athletes at the, the basketball level, you know, the, the club level. And uh, a lot of them have grown up with their, their, their dads being their coaches for a long time. Mm -hmm. And some of it's super uh, positive, a uh, very positive impact. And some of it is, is a tough thing for them to transition out of, I guess, or even have to deal with. So I'm curious, you know, what was it like for you? Did you feel like it was positive for you having your dad as your coach and the relationship aspect of it all? Honestly, I feel like, truthfully, I was one of the lucky ones. So my relationship with my my dad is amazing. And I feel like our really, a, a big part of our relationship was really built around sports. And so him, he was my softball coach for the longest time. Um, but it was so awesome because he did, he was so good at treating me like everybody else. And so there wasn't any nepotism. He was fantastic about that. But I feel like our relationship grew and grew and grew. Um, and he's, you know, I think a big piece of even to partly listen to psychology, like he's, he's very positive and he's a great teacher. And so I learned a lot from him within that space. Um, and so I, again, I feel like I was really lucky. I think for me, it had such a positive impact, but what was really different is because he knew, he knew the baseball softball arena so well, he knew the soccer arena so well, because I'd also been playing it for so long, but I enter this new world of volleyball. My parents know nothing about it. He knows nothing about it. And so that was such a change up. I think quitting softball was, or was a challenging thing at first until they realized okay wow like this is this volleyball thing like this is such a cool game and now we just get to sit watch and support her do her thing and honestly learn from some of the best um and i was really fortunate i'm from san diego california which is best like, city in the world thank you <laughs> it's amazing but huge when it comes to the volleyball space you know former olympians um college athletes you know who were some who were even like former college coaches. And so it's just, I was really fortunate within that, within that space, but it was really cool. Cause I felt like it was one of the first times where I could make it my own. Totally. That is so cool. And for those who are out there who might be either coached by their, their parents or are a parent of, of a, you know, and they're coaching their kid. I know a couple of them, a couple head coaches around the Valley here that, that yeah. definitely have that situation. I would actually take note. So good at treating her like everyone else. That's what Sarah just said positive and a great teacher that's another note that i just took as well those are some uh golden nuggets i would actually just i mean that's just kind of a side part of this conversation but i want to make sure people are taking notes it's the whole yeah. point of this is to educate so i hope those parents listen to that because that's actually really really cool and you were able to have that positive relationship with your dad and keep that because sometimes it can have an, an impact on the family relationship um it goes one way or the other you're you know and i see that a lot but 
That's awesome that you were one of the lucky ones. Shout out to your dad for that one. Awesome. <laughs> and yeah, San Diego, best city in the world. My favorite city in the entire world. Um, if uh, once once uh, this pandemic kind of ends or something, maybe I'll head down there a little more. But uh, I love I love San Diego. So shout out there too. So going into the volleyball space, I want to know what it was like. You know, the, the transition from the high school game to the collegiate game, especially at a high level in the collegiate game, because, you know, volleyball's not well known as far as like, what's the preparation? What's it, you know, what's the training look like for you guys? What's the competition look like? Is there a, is there a pretty tough transition going from the high school level to the college level? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, again, I will say this. I think I was extremely fortunate when it came to playing with some of the best. So I, you know, I played at a high school that was actually very, it was very good, uh, well known for volleyball. And then, um, you know, played on a club team. I played for, if anybody even is even familiar in the volleyball world, it was Epic Volleyball Club at first and then Coast Volleyball Club. And the majority of my teammates at the time were all going to play at Division One colleges, Division One institutions. Wow. So our entire team is pretty stacked. So I was, again, really fortunate from in the club space and even in the high school space. The transition, however, so different. I mean, I went to University of Missouri, which couldn't be more different than California. <laughs> um, but of course, the training is, it's, it's, it's so different. It's so intensive. The time demands are intensive. I mean, you going in to play a division one sport, it's a, it's a full-time job, especially at, you know, I got to play in my big 12, my, the big 12, my freshman year, and then my sophomore, junior and senior year, we had transitioned over to the SEC. So, I mean, and you're playing these big conferences. So it's, it's big time. And there's a massive learning curve and there's a lot of sacrifice and commitment um, that comes along with it. But if you really love what you do and you love the people around you, then it's worth it. I like that. So when you mentioned time demands and the training super intensive, do you yeah. mind telling us like, what's a, what's a day like for a college volleyball player at the division one level? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on when season is, usually our season's in the fall. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it, summer training was pretty intense. I mean, I'm up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. every morning for um, our training sessions with our athletic trainer, whatnot. Um, you know, and then from there, we're kind of entering into the fall season. Um, you're doing two-a-days, sometimes even more than that. So practices from anywhere from two to sometimes four hours. Um, and again, doing weightlifting, um, in the afternoons or sometimes in the morning, it just depended on the schedule. Uh, but most of your day is occupied with training. And then from there, the gaps are the times you go to school <laughs> for your academics, which is again, student first athlete second. But I, uh, it was, it, it's a, it's a lot of time spent, especially when traveling as well. And then you have your home games, right? Um, you have pregame practices. So sometimes we'd show up to the gym at, you know, 11 or noon. We'd have a little pregame practice, a pregame meal. We'd go over film, all the things. Then you're getting ready for the game. I mean, it's, it's a full day. It's a full day of preparation before your 6.30 p.m. start. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So I, this is the thing that's crazy to me. I think the general public, Sarah, they don't understand what a student athlete actually goes through. They see like, they'll watch like, okay, SEC football. These guys are just high risers. You know, they're just, they're living the life, yada, yada, yada. Dude, what they don't see is the behind the scenes of a student athlete. Like what you just said, like that's emotionally draining. You oh, have yeah. to go to class. You actually have to pass your classes or have a, you know, yeah. a decent GPA to be awesome. able to play, to qualify, to be able to play. You're nonstop before you even get to the game, you're like emotionally just drained for the day. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's crazy. And so one of the things is, and I had a very, very small glimpse of this. Now I was never at your level, of course, but even boxing at Boise state when I was 17 years old as a freshman in college, the, I remember not realizing how tough that, and that was for a club team. We didn't have it. It wasn't sponsored by the NCAA. So it was a club sport, but it was still demanding because we had to practice four days a week, which isn't even nearly what you guys are doing. And it was only like an hour and a half to two hours per day. And it's not even close to what you guys are doing. But I remember like just having to go to school and then transition back to, oh, it's fight mode, go and practice. And then if I had classes later in the night, 
transition back to student mode. And I'm like, after just getting punched in the face, you know, and, and physical, the physical demands of just like doing that, yeah, going yeah. Back, that, that switch was actually super crazy. It taught me a lot in life though. Um, so I'm curious, you know, being, you know, competing at that level for as long as you did, uh, what, what are some of, I guess, maybe the top three life lessons that volleyball taught you competing at the division one level, being a student athlete and going through those, you know, emotional things day in and day out for the four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is something that I say to my athletes that I work with. Um, but I think one of the most important things ever that I've taken away from this through life is that in the arena, right? Like your mental health, your mind has so, can absolutely affect what happens inside of the arena. So like what is happening outside to you, how you see yourself, how you see the world, right? Your mental health, even your body, how you take care of yourself can absolutely impact how you show up every single day, right? And quite honestly, what happens inside of the arena. So whether we're playing, whether we're not starting, whether, you know, whether we're winning, losing, whatever, whatever's going on in there can absolutely impact you outside as well and can also affect your mental health and your body, right? So your mind, your body from every aspect. And I think looking at life from a much more holistic approach is so important. Um, and I think that's really like how I've kind of lived my life. But I've also learned that in anything that you do, especially with sports, you have to have real buy-in. Because if you don't have passion and you don't feel like you have a purpose, then it's it's really hard to give everything and to, to make those sacrifices for yourself, for your life, for your career. So I always say passion with a purpose always prevails. That is huge. That mm -hmm. is absolutely huge. I loved every one of those things. And we'll kind of dive a little deeper into the yeah. mental health aspect of things too here yeah. in just a minute. But I love that insight. So if you guys are listening to this right now, I encourage you to rewind and take some notes on what Sarah just said. Like again, pause, rewind and take notes on what she just said. I mean, all that stuff is vital, a complete buy-in. That's huge. You're like you gotta, that's, that's so big. Um, now I want to know what your favorite memory was in college as a volleyball player. What was your favorite memory that you had? Oh, it was, uh, man, I think, so it's funny when I talk about this, it's not the actual outcome or accomplishment that is the, that is the feeling I have. It's, it's reminiscent of it, but to help understand what I, what I mean by this, it's probably when we won the SEC. So we won the Southeastern conference championship, my junior year of college. Um, and that was, that moment though, I mean, it was one of the, the most insane memories and insane moments probably of my life, but what was so special about it, it, it was almost like the feeling of like, you know, how much work you put in to then for that, for that to happen. But it was so, we always talk about, you know, the journey the destination, yada, yada. But I really do mean like when you are putting everything you can into a process and you seeing that it actually works, that is the most fulfilling feeling. Like it's right. the moment of the work that was put in, in order to get this insane outcome. Um, so it really wasn't just about winning a championship. It was about the fact that I did it with some of the most incredible people I've ever met. And we had, it was honestly one of the most life-changing experiences ever. Um, I can talk a little bit about that as well. It has a lot. That year has probably everything to do with why, with what I do now and why I do it. Well, let's talk about it. I want to hear more about it. So let's talk a little bit more about that year and how that, that impacted your decisions for your career moving forward. Yeah. Um, okay. So freshman, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, huge transition for myself, um, for a lot of people. Um, Sophomore year was a very trialing time, I think, in my life, to be completely honest. And I think a lot of the girls on my team, um, mental health became like 
so important. And I think there were a lot of things going on in everybody's own personal lives. And I think even throughout the team, the atmosphere itself, um, that we were kind of like, there are things to change. There are things to fix. Um, you know, we've had a, we had a lot of people transfer. Um, we didn't do very well our first, our first season in the SEC, which was our sophomore year, which was my sophomore year. Um, and at one point we only had (laughs) after that, after that sophomore year, that fall, I think in the spring we had seven, seven people left, maybe eight. And a team that, you know, a volleyball team holds anywhere from 12 to like 16, sometimes 20 players. Um, so we had, you know, we had some, some athletes transfer, some people quit. Um, and a lot of it was around kind of where we were all at emotionally and mentally in our lives. And I think what happened was we took this crazy full-fledged approach and we're like, okay, there's this poor seven of us left or eight of us, I think some were injured as well. So, you know, athletic related injuries sucks. And, um, and it's a part of, it's part of the game. It's part of sports. Um, and we actually hired a sports psychologist to come in. Um, shout out to Scott and Morton. She probably, I mean, she changed a lot of our lives. Um, and so she, um, she came in, we did, a lot in regards to just kind of getting our minds right, um, getting healthier as people, um, and literally recreating this unit um, for the people that were left on this team. And we were like, okay, well, what do we want to do? What do we want to accomplish? What do we want this team to look like? What do we want to be? But also, who do we want to be? Who do we want to be as people? And who do we want to be as athletes? And we really created this culture that changed everything. And so we had a ton of incoming freshmen, um, come in that next fall. So that summer was when we really talked about all this buy-in and changing the culture of our team and what we wanted it to look like. Um, we even used like a slogan, um, hashtag STP, but some it's called something, something to prove. That was our thing. That was kind of our motto. Um, and our coaches, I mean, they were just so bought in with this too. And so we literally worked as a unit together to get to know each other better personally um, and on the court. All right. And we were like, what, what do we want to create for ourselves? And so we had the freshmen really buy in to our process, which was just insane work ethic, positivity, positive psychology, showing up every single day, ready to get the job done. Um, Really, you know, really being there for one another. That was the biggest thing is like actually supporting each other when we were down, actually supporting each other when people were going through things, Um, whether it was on the court or off the court. Um, And, you know, the team bonding, I think that that changed everything, the team activities we were doing. Um, And we ended up going from kind of this mid losing-esque season my sophomore year to it was 35. We went 35 and oh, yeah, we went, we were undefeated <laughs> my junior year. Um, and that was what's insane. It's like, it was the most joy I've ever experienced in a sport. Um, the amount of like the amount that you feel in that space with those people, because you know that everybody was doing it for each other. Um, the camaraderie, like true, like love for the game and for those girls. And so I think if anything, we didn't just change, like we did not change as athletes. We changed as people a hundred percent. That is something they should write a book about if they haven't already done. So that is really cool. I'm sure like every girl that was there with you, you know, has their own perspective of that whole thing, but like can also speak to how powerful it was to be a unit. Um, that is super cool. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, Trevor Moad, rest in peace, but Trevor Moad, uh, was on my show before he wrote a book called it takes what it takes. And it's how to think neutrally. That's the, his whole thing. And he was Russell Wilson's mental consultant. He worked with Florida state, Georgia, Alabama, um, and some other big schools because that's, you know, he had that they hired him on as a sports psychologist, essentially to be the mental consultant, uh, for the team. And he would always teach about like, and people thought it was stupid. Like some of these players don't understand that until they realize how powerful it could be because, it's not one of those physical things that you're going to go in there and you're going to lift weights. You can see the the change physically. You don't really see the change 
mentally when you're doing some some of the psychological things. It's not like one of those things that you actually see the effects until you realize like how much healthier you are and happier you are. But people don't get to see that. The outside doesn't really get to see that. It's harder. So it's harder for people to buy in unless you get everybody in there. And, and I remember speaking with Trevor about that um, and just reading his book. It was unbelievable how powerful that is. And hearing you talk about this same concept of like, you know, getting everybody together and, and helping your mental health it has such an impact. And it goes back to what you said about in the arena, like everything that you do outside impacts what happens inside the arena. You've got you've to take care of yourself and then everything else will be better. Uh, but some people don't understand that, right? So they're like some, the general fan might not understand that. No. I bet there's people out there that had no idea what you guys were going through internally with that program um, mm-hmm. from that transition year, you know, everything was happening. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so cool to me. It's like, you, you have this experience, you went through this, you saw the, the impact that somebody could have in like a, a, a professional in that field could have helping you guys. Mm-hmm. And now you're kind of in that same space. Well, you are in that same space. Yeah. You're yeah. doing the same thing. I think it's super dope. And so I would love to talk more about this from the professional side of things as you transition into not, not just being the athlete, but now being on the professional side on the other side of it. Talk to me about this. What I guess, first off, you know, when we talked about transitioning from high school to the collegiate level, let's talk about the transition from being an athlete. And and now you're into a profession in this field Mm -hmm. and stuff. What was the toughest transition from that side? I want to know about that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That was hard. (laughs) So I think one of the things about sport, especially playing at a division one level is that, and and especially at a professional level is that sport being an athlete, it's, it's a complete and total extension of your identity. So it's a part of you. It becomes a part of who you are. It's quite honestly, a huge identifier, right? When you're in college as well. And I will say this, you are on a stage, people are seeing you, people notice you. I mean, you look at these professional athletes are on stages all the time, right? But that's the whole thing is you don't really know what's going on intrapsychically. You don't really know what's going on internally. And so um, really kind of leaving that space though, to this, you know, (laughs) citizen in the city of Chicago, (laughs) (laughs) moving out, and being like, wow, I, I have all of these, right? These extremely powerful moments um, playing collegiate athletics. Um, that athlete mentality has always been ingrained in me. Um, and I see it with all of my clients. It's just, there's something about the way that we think. <laughs> and there's some perfectionistic um, tendencies around that as well, which can be, which can be challenging, right? Um, especially because failure is a part of life and so is growth and learning and it's so non-linear. Um, but I think for me, like walking out and just being like, okay, normal, normal person, right? Goodbye. Goodbye. College volleyball. Um, hello, new life, new world. And, you know, I actually, I, um, I was a journalism major. I saw that in the zoo. That's one awesome. of the main reasons I went there. Um, and it's funny cause I talk about, you know, purpose, right? And I talk about passion all the time. And I ended up doing, I ended up working in corporate America actually for two, two and a half years um, in the city of Chicago. And although it was, it was, it was nice. It was good. It was sustainable. I never felt fully fulfilled. And so I said to myself, I think in order to go forwards, I have to go backwards. And I, kind of just took a step back and was like, where did I feel the happiest? Where did I feel the most purpose in my life? And quite honestly, it was, it was on the volleyball court. Um, but I also knew it was, it was the feeling of, of being a part of something and really talking and speaking to mental health and always being there for my teammates and them really being there for me. Um, and it's just something that is so core to me is your, your mental and emotional well-being as a person, but especially as an athlete. And I saw how much it impacted my life and how much it impacted the girls around me. And I had this crazy idea where I was like, I think I'm going to go back to school and be a therapist. And I think I want to specialize in working with elite athletes, right? Not just on their mental performance, not just around sports psychology, which is a lot of thinking right in sport, um, but really kind of 
indoctrinating and incorporating both here um, based off of my experience, but really learning what it means to be a therapist focused on their mental health, right? Because everybody comes from so many different walks of life the minute they enter, you know, collegiate athletics. Um, or they're in a professional, you know, they're on this massive stage. And that's what I'm saying. Like people don't understand necessarily what is going on inside, right? Whether it's from, you know, a biological perspective, right? They might have a biological predisposition to anxiety, depression, you name it. Um, or the amount of stressors, legitimate stressors that come along with playing at that level. Um, the time demands like we're talking about, right? And so there are so many layers to this. And if we're not taking care of our mind, that's, that's all we, that's really, besides our body, that's, that's, that's really all we have. Totally. No, this is crazy. Um, as I'm, as I'm listening to you talk, Sarah, I went back into the notes that I was taking earlier and the transition kind of sounds like you, you mentioned it earlier, very beginning of the episode where you're talking with, about your dad and you were saying, you know, you loved sport because you would develop a new school, uh, sorry, a new skill, unlearn it, then relearn it kind of thing. Same concept. You kind of like, you had to learn a new skill. Yeah. Uh, like unlearn it, relearn it. Like you're, you're, it's this constant um, evolution of totally. you know, development. And that's kind of what you did with your profession. You, you, you know, you utilize that same mindset that you learned through sport from a long time, like from the time you were a child to the time, you know, you finished your collegiate athletics and you learn that, you know, now it's time to learn a new skill and you went back to go, relearn some things and let's go let's get let's get to the next step here i think that was really cool i love the fact that you weren't scared to go back either like scared to go back to go forward so many people myself included we are progressing 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 in life and then it's almost like you feel like no i've been doing so good i don't i don't want to go back the fact that you made that leap is actually super impactful and super motivating so shout out to you there um and i think that's it's huge because you did a self-analysis you said you were never you never felt fully fulfilled at that moment, doing the corporate corporate side of things and doing that, um, even though it was good, you never felt fully fulfilled. And that word fulfilled, I literally use that word every day. I always ask myself when I'm working my full-time job, I'm like, hey, do you feel fulfilled in the work you're doing? And the, and the day that that stops, I don't want to be there. I don't know if I'll have the guts like you did, but I don't want to be there if I don't feel fulfilled. I love that you had that same mindset too. You're asking yourself, am I fulfilled? Um, Thank you. That's so cool. I now to transition to another question that I, I sometimes I write down questions as you're talking, like yeah, ideas that come to mind. And <laughs> one of the things was, as you were talking about the big stage of like collegiate athletic or sorry, not, not collegiate, but professional athletics. Right. So, um, here's my question though. Now it's stemming into to collegiate athletics with name, image, and likeness and yeah. the professional side, they say more money, more problems. <laughs> that's, that's the phrase more money, more problems. Well, professionals have a lot of money and a lot of fans, a lot of people that are sitting here, the spectators, They'll complain. They'll be like, why, why does Kevin Love care about, like, why does he, why is he having a problem? Why does he have issues? You know, uh, why does Brandon Marshall for the Denver Broncos, like when he was over there, why does he have issues? Like he's got millions of dollars. Like they, they, they say, um, I guess it would just be ignorant things. Maybe they just haven't been taught. It's, it's comments like that, that gets spewed a lot because they think that money has a lot to do with just like solving every issue. But you know, it goes back to more money, more problems. Now at the collegiate level, athletes can leverage their name, image, and likeness. And you're seeing some, not all actually do that there as some of them are actually making a lot of money that they might not be used to but i think that brings on additional pressures that's just my own opinion and so i'm curious in your field and your professional experience sarah have you dealt with this and have you seen how not just the actual pressure of performing every day but when money's involved do you feel like that has an additional pressure on top of these athletes oh my gosh absolutely i think you know quite honestly i think it's naive to think that money doesn't buy you opportunities, all right? But it does not buy you happiness at all. And it never will because happiness comes from within always. And so although it might feel really good in a moment and it might open doors, right? It is really intrapsychically about the person themselves, how they see themselves, how they, again, how they kind of see the world. Um, and it, you know, it goes back to their character and beyond that, like their mental health, <laughs> like how they, how they operate mentally and emotionally. And I think money can be so blinding, like 
all material things. There's shiny new toys, right? It's we live in a world, we talk about this all the time, instant gratification. And I think all of the name, image, and likeness, you know, all of that comes along with social media. And I'm sure you've talked about that plenty in your podcast before as well. But you know, that that's another that's a huge avenue um, that a lot of athletes are are going down that kind of that that road and that path with. Um, and although that does offer a lot of opportunity as well, um, to be seen, to be known, to promote, right? You know, likes, likes on a page have nothing to do with how you like yourself. And so again, it really comes back to the person, um, and the core of a person and also like the things that they're experiencing in life, because we all have pain and none of us are exempt from it. 100%. And for the young athletes out there, for what Sarah just said, again, I would encourage you to maybe mark that down as well. The likes on the page, like that, that's a huge thing. Social media is huge. And I think we all use it for like our branding purposes. And it is a big piece of like for business and so forth, but it does, it, it brings on a lot of additional stressors um, because money now is involved with it. And it's like, it's a popularity contest especially even at a young level. I mean, these young high school athletes are trying to get recruiters to look at them. And so, you know, a recruiter might be more prone to look at a page that has a lot of engagement. Oh, that kid must be pretty good because he's got a lot of engagement. Well, let's take a look at him. So they're worried about that kind of stuff. And that's just, it's crazy, but that's the truth and the reality of the situation now. Like, so I hope that people mark that down. Um, so what, what I also like, I wrote down a rod. Um, I remember listening to Alex Rodriguez talk about his steroid issues. Right. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, he opened up about it on one of the podcasts that I listened to. And one of the things he said, it was, you know, when he got signed over to New York to play for the Yankees, this huge team, everyone knows him. The whole world knows who the Yankees are. He was going to be paid million, like hundreds of millions of dollars. Like that guy was, the owner was paying him a lot of money to be there. And he talked about, he did not want to hit the stress on his life was so high at that moment because he, he was going to be on the spotlight, big stage, biggest team in the world, biggest contract had been signed at that point, like everything. And he did not want to disappoint. So he started using performance enhancing drugs so that he could make sure that he could perform at a high level because he knew the lights were going to be on him. And that was a risk he was willing to take. And then he opened up completely about that. And it just kind of reminds me of what we're talking about here. Like there's so many additional pressures and they, there's this like this fear of failure. And oh. so, to your, to your, you know, going into your professional world and, and your college athletics experience failure, how much do you think the fear of failure affects these athletes mentally? Oh, uh, I think it's it, honestly, it's one of the number one things we talk about in any session, even with teams, right? This idea of failure, um, failure, not being an option, <laughs> some, you know, athletes kids raised in households or environments where failure really isn't one or you're reprimanded right for failing for screwing up for not being perfect which is a complete and total illusion because nobody's perfect um and so you know one thing i was always taught even by our coaches who are my coaches uh, at mizzou um was to like to actually lean into failure. Failure is a part of learning. It's it's how we grow, right? It's how we evolve. Um, instead of I always, you know, I kind of breach this with my clients, but I talk a lot about this idea of, of we always say like why, like why is this happening? Why, 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 why? Why did I screw up? Why am I not playing X, Y, and Z? But it's no like what is this teaching me? Where can I grow from this? Right. This idea that failure isn't an option comes from such a fixed mindset. And what I really aim to do in the work um, that I do with my athletes and I think for a lot of coaches is is reframing that into this growth mindset of failure is a part of life. It is a human experience. And so, you know, for these college athletes, for these pros, even like we've all we're not perfect and we have all failed. And that also does not mean we are exempt from human emotion. And I think sometimes fans or people, parents, coaches, even it happens, right? Um, you know, we think that everybody that you are so invincible <laughs> and that, 
you can't fail and that, and if you do fail, like it's, it's problematic, but really like if we continue to reinforce that, what we're doing is we're really hiding everything that we're actually feeling and turn internalizing it. And it makes it so much harder on ourselves to then allow ourselves one to forgive us, right? To be able to move through life a little bit quicker and to be able to learn faster. Instead, we stay so stuck in the why, 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 and, and literally feeling like a failure. I, you know, how many times I hear athletes, you know, kind of, I I talk, we talk about this extension of identity or even pathologizing. It's kind of a word you use in therapy. um, It's too big a word for me. I don't even know what that is. (laughs) So for example, if, if, you know, if one of my clients has anxiety, but um, kind of stamping that on their, their face, like, oh, this is the person with the anxiety disorder. And it's like, no, the majority of us experience uh, some level of angst in our lives. Okay. So learning how to normalize all of that instead of pathologizing it learning how to normalize failure in a way as as room for growth, I think is just, it's just so important. Um, And, you know, it's, it's important to hold people accountable as well, but at the same time, we can't punish somebody for not being perfect. No, I love that. I love everything. And as you're talking, one of the things comes to mind this last week, we're watching one of the best high school basketball games I've ever been a part of. I was covering it here locally in our town. I mean, stands were packed from the bottom all the way to the upper deck. I mean, not an empty seat in the house. The whole entire valley was there. Unbelievable. And uh, arguably the number one team in Idaho lost by four in four overtimes. One of the craziest games I've ever seen. But what I saw, Sarah, was the parents, the reactions since that game, which was on Tuesday night, the last 48 hours since then, I am mind blown at like some of the reactions of the parents of the players on that team, uh, of that program. You're literally the number one team in Idaho, you lost by four points in the fourth overtime and they're acting like it's the end of the world. And, and some of the things they've said, not only about their players, but about the coaches and about just the program itself. I'm like, yo, you lost a game. Like, come on. Like it, it was a great game. Like it's not the end of the, the season's just started. Like all these things are going to my head. I wish, you know, taking your words, like reframe that into a growth mindset. Like what's this teaching me? Where can we grow from this? Let's move on. It's not the end of the world, but I do think that it's unfortunate, and that that's very common, and I would be lying if I said I wasn't a fan like that at one point where I was just like, come on, what are you doing? Make a free throw. And I say the things I want to say, those types of things. But as I've gotten older, I've tried to take on a different mindset, like you said, because I understand a little bit differently now than I used to. And so it's, it's sad for me, though, to see this when the younger athletes are getting that influence from their parents, and then that can stem later on because a lot of those athletes will go on to play at the collegiate level on that particular team that I'm talking about because they are – the number one team in Idaho and they are very, very talented so that all of it's kind of like, and I'm, I'm, I, when you're talking, I'm playing it around in my own head for my own world that I live in. And it's so sad because everything you're saying is applicable to every, it doesn't matter if I'm in Idaho, you're in Chicago, it's happening over here. Same as it happens in Chicago, same as it happens in San Diego, Missouri, wherever. Um, it's sad actually, but it's cool that you have that skill set and you are making an impact here. Um, I want to ask you this. You mentioned that they hired a sports psychologist for you guys at Missouri. Mm-hmm. That's not common at every place, though, right? It's not not everywhere does that because not everybody has the same mm-hmm. uh, mindset and beliefs in that regard. Yeah. Do you feel though that this should be more of a priority? I think that's a common sense question. Actually, obviously, you feel it's my priority. But what does it take to get a sports psychologist into every college, at least at the Division One level? How how can we get there, Sarah, to where we can make an impact where we're not just working on your physical strength? but your mental strength as you're a young athlete with the lights on you? A hundred. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I think we're already, I actually think we're moving that way. So I will say that much. I think as a culture, I think with athletes, the more, you know, people talk about their stories and we normalize this idea of what we're talking about with failure too. Like, what we're not even recognizing is the more we preach that, the more we silence people from being able to ask for help. Right. Because if you're taught not to fail, then you're, we, the way we look at mental health then is like, well, then we can't ask for help. Like something's wrong with us. All right. Whereas it's quite the opposite. It's, 
it's learning that asking for help is it's a part of life. It's one of the strongest things you can do. And I think people are starting to see that athletes are starting to see that athletic departments are starting to see that. Right. And I think they're also starting to see that in regards to performance levels as well. Like your performance is naturally going to improve if your mind is healthier. Right. Or if you're actually able to think um, from a, a more positive mindset. And so I, you know, like, like you would with an athletic trainer taking care of your body. It's the same thing with a sports psychologist helping kind of take care of your mind from a a performance aspect. So two things here. So one, I think we're already heading that way from a sports psychology perspective. I think we can continue to normalize um, how amazing it really is to have somebody come in and really talk about you know, performance-related stressors due to how we think, how we see ourselves, and really how we see the game, our connection with coaches, staff, all of it. Um, but there's another layer to this. So there's we have one piece, right, that, it, again, that is like the sport and performance piece um, in psychology. But the other piece is your, your legitimate mental health, all right, that goes just beyond sport. And that is something that we're starting to bridge. And that is something that I and my, you know, Derek, my owner, like, and I think more and more therapists and athletes are starting to talk about. It's not just about, a, just about performance-related psychology. It is about mental and emotional well-being. It is about everything that goes on inside of your mind and inside of yourself. And I don't think we have enough therapists out there who actually are former athletes. Um, and I think this is this is why the space is so niche. And this is what I would love. I, I mean, my dream would be that there's a sports psychologist and a mental health therapist in every single athletic department, that there's a sports psychologist, you know, on retainer working with professional teams and a mental health therapist working with professional teams as well. So you're attacking both the sport and performance piece, which is absolute, which absolutely parlays into the mental health piece as well. But there's so much that goes on beyond sport, right? In our lives that then affects it. And so, you know, your mind, it's how, again, how you live your life, how you see yourself, the the company you keep, the relationships, the connections, all of it, like, it's so important. Processing pain, human emotions. That's what I keep saying. Like athletes aren't exempt from that because they are athletes, because we are talked about from such a a physical standpoint, because there are things that you can point at and be like, wow, that's their physical body. Look at how they play. Look at how they perform. But in order for them to do all these things, it's what's really going on underneath there. They're a human. They're, they're a human being. 100%. And yeah. um, I like how you broke that up. I mean, there's a sports performance side of it, and then there's the actual mental health side of it. And for those, maybe an example of that, I guess, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. for those who are listening, they're like, well, what's the difference? Well, for the to answer that question, I don't know. There's always like, I've, I've always thought there are people who have performance anxiety when it comes to the basketball court or the football field. Like they're the practice All-Americans who do so great. But as soon as they get in there, they feel the pressure on. They don't. All of a sudden, when they're at the free throw line, we always say, oh, it's a mental thing. Like, it's a mental thing for that guy because he's shooting a free throw, you know? Like, he, it's the same distance to a free throw line from the time you're five to the time you're 50. It's never changed. It's the only line in basketball that never changes distance. And th- somehow they don't know how to shoot him as a professional, but and they, everyone says it's a mental thing. Would that be more of a sports performance type of deal? Because, like, maybe you get to the line and you start your heart starts racing. You don't know how to calm yourself down. It's not the same as in practice. All of a sudden, you're, you're not able to control – emotions would that be a sports performance type of a situation yes totally totally so um again this is kind of related more to enhancing their performance in the arena right so yes pre-performance anxiety huge within that space right or even talking about negative feedback loops so right if we're constantly saying to ourselves i can't i can't i can't then we probably will get really tense (laughs) while we're playing right or we that idea when you become really mechanical right when you're in your head i always sometimes say when you're in your head you're dead some of my athletes. So I kind of do, you know, there is a lot of crossover. There is, there really, really is. But again, from a sports psych piece, it's 
focused more on really helping them improve within the arena, which again, still translates into how they see themselves outside of it. But what a mental health professional that's working with elite athletes is doing is a little bit different. I mean, we're, we're here to help assess all mental and emotional, anything from the mental and emotional space, um, you know, mind, body connection, all of it, but also like talking about their relationships, their family, their upbringing, right? If they don't feel worthy inside of the arena, right? Then what, let's talk about where that might stem from. All right. Or if we don't feel like we love ourselves, right, then let's explore that deeper. That is going, regardless of whether it's in or outside, that just translates constantly. And so a lot of what happens, I think it shows up in sport. And then from there, we're kind of, what I like to do is I kind of like to work backwards from it. And so we can kind of get a better understanding of where the root of some of these mental health concerns and issues are, and also just processing pain. Like there's so much around not playing that hurts, that literally hurts, right? Or an athletic related stressor, um, or, you know, or injury even, like you're taken out, like that's devastating for a lot of these athletes. Career ending injuries, devastating, you know, or even like your relationships with again, your family or your coaches. So it's, there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about in the mental health world. And I think for athletes, it's starting to just evolve and we're starting to tap into it more and body image, another huge piece of this. So lots of layers here. Oh, a ton of layers. And I'm so grateful. Like I know we've, we've talked quite a bit, so I'll, I'll have one more question as we wrap it up, but I do want to touch base real quick on what you just said, like, I'm glad that there are people like you, Sarah, that are out there making a difference in this, this world. For those who might not know this, there might be parents out there who never realize like this might be what your son or daughter is going through injury. Like all those layers you just mentioned, injuries are one of them. Even myself at, at 28 years old, I, I injured my shoulder, had surgery on my shoulder. I've mentioned this a, a couple of times on the show, that injury, even though I'm not, I'm no longer playing at an elite level, I still like to compete and work out and do all my stuff. Like that's, that's kind of my passion. My drive is, is sports. And I couldn't play basketball. I had to have surgery on my shoulder. I got extremely overweight. I gained 45 pounds. Um, I was taking painkillers, which I didn't like at all, which made me even more depressed than I ever thought I could be. Those put me into a mental funk that I've never been in before. I've, I mean, I went down a whole loop and then trying to recover from that. So that's just the surgery part. Then you go through the recovery process, right? You go through a recovery process of an injury where you're going to PT, where I thought I was never going to move my shoulder again, because the first two weeks I literally couldn't move my arm. And so they're trying to, and they're like, Oh, and then they're trying to get your arm up two inches. And I'm like, I'm never gonna move my arm again. And it, it's a psychological, you just go through these loops for six months and people think, Oh, that, that, that football player broke his leg. He'll be back in six weeks or Conor McGregor just shattered his leg against Dustin Poirier. He'll be back in a couple months. Like, did you realize what's going on behind the scenes? how that impacts an athlete that is so draining mentally, not to mention, like you just said, that's just one aspect. There's so many different layers that could be impacting them so much relationships with coaches, not playing different things that happen inside the games. Like and, and in school, there's like, there's relationships at school too. Like if you have a bully at school, you might be dealing with something in a popularity contest that you're dealing with. And then you have to internalize that and bring that into the basketball court or the football field or the volleyball court. There's a lot of stuff that's external that they have to like bring in with them. I just hope parents understand and they, they have a better understanding now that you just said that yeah. of all the layers. Um, so Sarah, what I will ask you to, to wrap this up is one, the first, the big question is you mentioned a couple things like for pre-performance anxiety or whatever. Mm -hmm. Do you mind giving a, a practical example of maybe something like, I know you normally charge for this, so don't give away the house. I'm just saying like maybe a practical example of what you would tell an athlete uh, of, or something that you've, you've discussed with an athlete, like to help them with their pre-performance anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, mindset so important to be honest. I, I actually encourage meditation mm -hmm. all the time. So mindfulness meditation, um, so important visual imagery. So even seeing like visualizing yourself do the thing over and over and over. Um, you know, I've actually had, there's a couple of athletes I've worked with um, where I've had a couple of basketball players actually 
put a blindfold on and just go over and over and over to to come back to the feeling of shooting that same shot over and over and over blindfolded um so you're trying to essentially master the feeling of what it feels like to do the same thing over and over and over again without thinking without thinking about it um even you know i talk about reframing all the time so listening to your thoughts is so important being more aware as to what you're thinking um we are very mean to ourselves <laughs> as human beings so be very wary of what you're saying to you um you know people say you are what you think it eh. I, I believe that to an extent, but I do think how we talk to ourselves has so much to do with that. So if we're over here saying, I am nervous, I am anxious, I can't miss this, guess what's probably going to happen? You're going to miss it, right? Instead of, so another thing too is accepting those nerves. I would call it like, you know, when you have butterflies, actual anxiety or pre-performance angst is acknowledging that it's totally common. It's going to happen. We all have butterflies. We all get nervous. Um, it's it's almost like accepting them and saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm prepared for these butterflies. I know they're going to come. This is a part of the game. This is part of life because it means that you actually care. All right. And instead of looking at it from the lens of nervous energy, this is energy um, I'm going to lean into. This is energy. These butterflies are telling me that I'm ready. I'm going to attack this. Right. And you hear all the time, like fake it till you make it, but sometimes we actually have to do that. So reframing again, what we tell our, what we say to ourselves is so important. I even have people pick kind of like phrases um, for themselves, whether it's like, I can, I, I can, and I will for a game or coming back um, to kind of right here, right now, coming back to the present moment. Um, Cause oftentimes we're thinking about the shot that we just missed or you know, the mistake or error we just made. And we don't even have time for that. We don't have time to be thinking about the past when we're in the middle of a game. And so really trying to refocus by saying like right here, right now, or, you know, I can and I will, um, whatever, really whatever works for said person. Um, and one thing my sports psychologist always taught me, she was like, you can always pick a new thought, always pick a new thought. And I love that. So um, that's something I, you know, I share with all my clients too. You can always pick a new thought. So come back. So come back to a thought that works for you. Come back to a thought or a mindset you can actually embody and then start to believe. Goodness. I have taken more notes from my conversation with you over the past hour than I did probably for any college professor I ever listened to. <laughs> so I'm dead serious. I think this is a phenomenal conversation, Sarah. For those who want to, you know, if they live in the area, um, where you guys are at and want to benefit from your guys' services, where can we find more information about what, where you're at and uh, how they can talk to you, Sarah? Yeah. Um, so our practice is called Millennium Counseling Center. Um, we're at 65 East Wacker um, Drive downtown at Chicago, Illinois. Um, and we have a, our websites, millenniumhope.com. And you can, you know, you can see a list of all of our services there. Um, you know, on our website, there's an actual sports division. You can look up my name, Sarah Meister Counseling, Sarah Meister Millennium Counseling. Um, it'll likely pop up. Um, but again, our practice is called Millennium Counseling Center um, in downtown Chicago. I love it. And I'm going to challenge those who I know. I have a, a really good friend of mine who's who lives here in Idaho, but his company that he runs is actually out of Chicago uh, for Tron Solar. And so I'm going to shout out the guys over at Tron who are in Chicago. Make sure to get the word out there for us because you guys, I have connections there. So I want to make sure that they do that. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold them to it. Uh, Sarah, it's been a phenomenal time just listening to you, conversing with you and learning from you. So I just want to say thank you for, for joining us and being willing to share your expertise. Yeah, of course. No, I, I really, really appreciate it. And I think what you're doing here is amazing and providing a space and a platform to hear people with real stories. And, you know, I think from the mental health aspect too, um, I think it's just beginning. So thank you for also providing the space for me to, to share what I know and what I love. Absolutely. It's been an honor and, and I love it. So I appreciate you. 
And I appreciate the listeners. If this is anyone's first time listening to the show, awesome. Welcome aboard. Make sure to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how we get this out to more countries. We've, we've been in 92 countries. We can get it out to more people if we leave reviews. That's how the algorithm works on Apple. So go ahead and leave us a review. Let us know what you thought of Sarah's conversation. And we'll be coming to you guys next week with another interview. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to the Millennium Counseling Center podcast. Where hope is yours, it's time to soar. Continue along your journey of healing, hope, and recovery with us next week. If you want to learn more about mental health, recovery, or if you just need someone to talk to, send us a message on Instagram or fill out the contact form on our website at millenniumhope.com. We are here to talk.